So, Lord, just speak to our hearts as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as you know, that in chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation, is speaking of that time that we know is the tribulation period. It's called Daniel's 70th week. It's that final seven-year period right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ that we are going to see in chapter 19 when he comes back literally, when he comes back physically. He's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives is what Zechariah prophesies and tells us. We are going to be coming back with him. And we know at that time that he will judge the nations. He's going to establish his kingdom. Uh, and, and so we'll see that in chapter 19. Prior to that, we see this final seven-year period where there's a number of things that are taking place. And in chapter 6, as the opening of those seven seals, beginning uh, the seven-year period, the tribulation period, that we know that the first seal that was opened up was the rider coming riding on a white horse. He had a crown. He came with a bow but no arrow, and he is conquering unto conquer. So we identified this writer as the Antichrist. And we know that the Antichrist in the tribulation period, in the seven-year period, is going to take center stage. There is so much that has taken place here. We know that in the first three and a half years, in the tribulation period, is divided up into two parts. The first three and a half years, and then the second three and a half years, you see it written as three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1,260 days, or time times, which is two years, so time is one year, times two years, a half time, that's three and a half years. That's how you'll read it in the scriptures. The last three and a half years from the midpoint to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is 1260 days, 42 months, um, we know that it is called the Great Tribulation Period or Jacob's Trouble. And Jesus said that it will be a time of great tribulation or great trouble such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. Now as the Antichrist comes on the scene, he begins to, to become uh, a world leader. And at the halfway mark, as we saw in chapter 11, the temple sitting in its place there in Jerusalem. And John was told to measure the temple, don't measure the outside because it has been given to the Gentiles. We know in the first three and a half years that you had the ministry of the two witnesses that we read about there in chapter 11, the two witnesses, their ministry was that, you know, that the fire proceed from their mouths and devoured their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, uh, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have powers over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony after 1260 days, then we know that we are told that uh, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit comes against them and, and kills those two witnesses. Those two witnesses lay in the streets of Jerusalem where the whole world sees it because we can go live to anywhere in the world with cable network and news and satellites and all of that and, and we can see it and the world's going to see it. They're going to rejoice over these two witnesses that are dead because they tormented those who dwell on the earth for those first three and a half years. So it's interesting what has taken place here. And then after three and a half days, they're going to resurrect their bodies. And so the beast coming out of the bottomless pit, speaking of Satan or the Antichrist, is going to come against those two witnesses. 
we also know that as we saw in chapter 12, that the Antichrist, that he is going to go after Israel. We know that it's spoken here in chapter 12 that there's a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head a garland of 12 stars. It's speaking of Israel and this woman, she bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's obviously Jesus that comes from Psalm 2, that the messianic psalm that tells us when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom, that he's going to rule with the rod of iron. Righteousness will fill the earth as, as waters cover the sea, is what the book of Isaiah tells us. So Israel, as Jesus would be born, the, the dragon here identified as Satan, that he tried to destroy you know, the male child, and, and we covered all of that, but we know that he's still trying to destroy the woman. He's still trying to come against Israel because we have talked about in the book of Romans, particularly as you cover those three chapters, 9, 10, and when you get into chapter 11, Paul says that God still has a plan for Israel, that the day is going to come when their eyes are going to be opened up. We read about it in Zechariah as well, as they will see the one that was pierced. They will mourn for him. They will say, where did you get those wounds? And he will reply, Jesus, by saying, I got these in the house of my friends. Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem, he said that you're not going to see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so a prerequisite of Jesus coming back is their eyes are going to be opened up. We know Joel talks about that in his prophecies, that they're going to call for a fast as it seems like Israel is going to go under. We'll talk more specifically as we get to chapter 16 here, the book of Revelation, and they're going to call out to God and they're going to realize that Jesus is their Messiah. And, and, and so we know that the enemy, Satan, not wanting Jesus to come back, thinking that he, if he can destroy the Jewish people, then maybe he can perhaps prevent Jesus from coming back. It, it's not going to happen, but that's why we know that Satan, and he's going to be influencing this man called the Antichrist, empowering him, that is called the beast here in chapter 13. And so halfway in the tribulation period, Jesus says an event's going to happen as he makes reference to Daniel's prophecies that when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of of Daniel the prophet, then get out. He's speaking to Israel. Pray that it isn't on the Sabbath. Why? Because transportation breaks down and, and or closes down. Trains don't run. Buses don't run. Pray, you know, uh, that you're not a nursing mother. All these things. Get off your rooftop and get out of there because it will be great tribulation. The Antichrist, what he's going to do is go into that rebuilt temple there is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us and he's going to proclaim himself as God he's going to be directly influenced as I said by the dragon by Satan and what we see in chapter 12 and 13 is we see this false trinity because we're going to see another one that is rising up that is going to come alongside the Antichrist and he's going to point to the Antichrist so all these things are taking place, and as the Antichrist, directly influenced by Satan, is going to be one that is going to proclaim himself as God to be worshipped. And at that time, Israel, or the Jews, are going to reject him. They're going to reject that image that he sets up there. That's the abomination of desolation, spoken of a Daniel the prophet. They're going to reject him. 
He's going to go after them, and they're going to flee a remnant of them to the rock city of Petra, where they're going to be nourished and protected for three and a half years, 42 months. We also know other things that are going to take place that we're going to read about here as we pick up our text now in, in chapter 13, as we see that not only is he wage war on the Jews, he's going to wage war on the tribulation saints. We do read in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Revelation, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And so in chapter 12, the woman Israel gave birth to the male child Jesus, the, the true Messiah. The red fiery dragon coming against the woman, identified as dragon, the serpent of old, and, and uh, called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. We know that from verse 12 of chapter 12. And that dragon, as we saw him in chapter 12, verse 3, that dragon had seven heads, Ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on his head. So in chapter 12, John's vision mainly had in heaven in view. Chapter 13, the scene shifts to the earth. And in chapters 12 and 13, as I mentioned already, we see this devilish trinity. Satan, the dragon. Uh, we see the beast, the Antichrist, who is directly influenced under the control of Satan, and then the false prophet that's going to point to the Antichrist. And he is the Antichrist who takes center stage here. This world leader is going to come out of, and this is really important for us to understand, and Daniel painstakingly presses this point in, in chapters 2 and 7 and, and, and throughout the book of Daniel when he's speaking about the Antichrist, he's going to come out of what we call this revived Roman Empire, the Gentile nations. And in verse 1 here, as we re read in our text of Revelation chapter 13, the sea oftentimes represents Gentile nations. So in Daniel chapter 2, which is called the foundation of Bible prophecy, and we covered it a little bit as we've gone through the book of Revelation, that Daniel is, is telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream that he had of this image that was made of different gold, and he interprets the dream. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar these represents four empires from the time of Daniel to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And with the legs of iron would represent the Roman Empire, the fourth empire that is mentioned there. And in the legs of iron, there is the feet with iron mingled with clay, and it had ten toes. And these ten toes that we are told in Daniel chapter 2 specifically are ten kings, and those kings will be ruling at the time that the rock comes and hits the image uh, in the feet. The image crumbles to dust. The wind blows it away and then the rock grows it speaks of Jesus Christ so in the latter days there is going to be this revived Roman Empire this extension of the legs of iron uh, that represented Rome and it's going to have ten toes which are ten kings now in Daniel chapter 7 we see that Daniel has a vision of four beasts that represent those same four empires the Babylonian Empire the Medo-Persian Empire the Grecian Empire Empire, and then the fourth beast, which was dreadful. He doesn't say what kind of beast it was. And that fourth beast had ten horns, 
which are 10 kings, again, we are told in the book of Daniel. And out of those 10 kings, a little horn, and that speaks of Antichrist. That is the title of the Antichrist. So he's going to come on the world scene. And we also know that Daniel chapter 7 tells us, as well as chapter 11, that this Antichrist that comes, that he's going to speak blasphemous things against God. So the Greek word here, beast, is he's called the beast, has the idea of a wild, dangerous animal. And Antichrist, keep in mind this as we've talked about this, the Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ. That's how we uh, define anti. It's against, and it is that. But he is going to come instead of Christ. Because what we know is going to take place is that he's going to come and he's going to hail himself as the Messiah. He's going to hail himself and try to get the Jews to worship him. It's interesting for those of you who are going to Israel with us and those of you who have been to Israel with us, when we're in Jerusalem, you will see signs in Hebrew that will say, get ready, Messiah is coming. And the Jews are looking, the religious Jews, Jews looking for the Messiah to come. But what is interesting when you talk to them, if you ever have a chance to, of what is your idea of Messiah, they're not looking for someone that is coming like deity, the Son of God. Uh, back in Jesus, when he uh, was ministering, of course, the religious leaders, that's one of the things that really upset them is that he claimed that he came from heaven, that he came from the Father, that he was equal with God. And, and we see that clearly, particularly in John chapter 10. They're about ready to stone Jesus. And Jesus said, why do you stone me for the works that I do? And they said, no, not for the works that you do, but you being a man claim to be God. They knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming deity and, and they thought that was blasphemous. So uh, that was a major contention with the religious leaders 2,000 years ago. And the Jews today, when they talk about the Messiah that's going to come, they're talking about a man, a political leader, someone who's going to lead them to peace. Because one of the things that Israel is very tired of since they come into the land since 1948 is war. They're tired of war. They've been through the war of 48, 56, the Six-Day War, 67, the Yom Kippur War, 73, that, that almost did them in. And God's hand intervened and, and pushed the enemy out. We know that there's been a couple of Lebanon wars. And then even now, we see that there's Hezbollah and Hamas and what's going on in Syria, that, that they uh, live in, in you know, the knowledge and, and knowing very well that war could break out at any time. So they're tired of war, and they are looking for that one, that leader, that political leader that's going to come along, that's going to bring peace to them and prosperity to them. That's what they mean by Messiah. So we know that Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that this Antichrist that's going to come from Rome, it tells us very specifically in chapter 9, that he is going to make a covenant with Israel or confirm a covenant for one week, for seven years. And then halfway through that seven-year period is the abomination of desolation when he breaks that covenant and proclaims himself as God, to be worshipped as God in the temple of God, is what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 
Thessalonians chapter 2. And so he is going to come along seemingly. He has a bow. Remember uh, chapter 6 verse 2 of Revelation. But he doesn't have an arrow. So he comes by peaceful means. But it is a false peace. So people are going to look at him. And they're going to turn to him. They're going to see him as a Messiah. So Antichrist means not just against Christ. He is. But instead of Christ. And we know that when he comes on the scene. Here's the thing that you need to remember. That the Antichrist isn't going to come on the scene. With you know a dark hoodie on. And red eyes. And a hideous laugh. Going ha 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 ha. You know, like a mad scientist that's about ready to take over the world. He's not going to be ugly and repulsive and dark. He's going to come as light. Paul said to the Corinthians, they don't marvel, for Satan himself can transform himself into an angel of light. It is a light that he will bring. It's a false light. But we know that that's the way the world's going to see the Antichrist. You know, it's interesting today when you start hearing things as we find ourselves in a, an election that some of the candidates that are saying we're going to usher in a new air, not just new policies, but we're going to usher in a new air. We're going to usher in, even some of them are saying, a new spiritual air. And I hear that and it sends shivers up my spine because that's the way the Antichrist is going to come. He's going to come as light. He's going to be charming. He's going to seem beautiful. He's going to seem successful and wonderful. Daniel repeatedly says that he's going to come on what seems to the world a great orator, a man of peace. This is the guy. This is what we've been waiting for. He is known as the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, the king of fierce countenance, Daniel chapter 8, the prince that shall come, Daniel chapter 9, the willful king, Daniel chapter 11, the one who shall come in his own name, John chapter 5, verse 43, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He is spoken of by John and Paul, by Daniel, by Jesus himself, by Zechariah. And there's something different about the beast than the dragon. Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, again, the dragon has seven diadems, crowns on his head. Here the beast has ten crowns. The seven crowns of the dragon express his strength and power. The ten crowns of the beast express his rule over a group of those ten kings. But we continue in verse 2. Now the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So God uses those images from Daniel chapter 7 to communicate the identity and the nature of this beast. Uh, again, a world leader. He is empowered and supported by Satan. Um, he expresses Satan's desire. Uh, and what is Satan's desire? We know from Isaiah chapter 14. Remember, you students of the Bible, as we went through the book of Isaiah, that it is Satan that wanted to establish himself on the throne of God to be worshipped as God. Satan has always wanted to be worshipped. 
One of the temptations of Jesus is that he took Jesus up on a high hill, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said that all of these are yours if you bow down and worship me. And notice that Jesus did not dispute that claim. He didn't say, go away, Satan. This, these kingdoms aren't yours to give. Because when Adam sinned, it was forfeited to Satan. And, and now he is the God little G of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. But we know that as Jesus is took the seven seal scroll that we saw in chapters five of the book of Revelation that many believe that's the title deed to the earth and the culmination of everything is going to come down to where that is going to be taken back by Jesus what is his as he reclaims as he came to redeem the world to himself and that's all going to come but Satan wants to be worshipped and, and he's going to have a cat-like vigilance as this these analogies are used like a leopard moving quickly. He's going to have the crushing power of a bear. He'll have the authority and the strength of a lion. And in verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So this is a real interesting verse. It tells us a little bit more specifically about the Antichrist. It appears that <clears throat> there's going to be perhaps something that happens, an assassination attempt, Maybe some kind of accident. Maybe that in a military battle, because we know that the Antichrist, that he is going to be a military leader. We will see that later on. Maybe something happened. There is something that apparently happens where he receives this deadly wound, uh, mortally wounded. His deadly wound was healed. And we know that he's near death or he actually did die. And Zacharias, speaking about this in chapter 11, for you note takers, you can look it up. But Zechariah, you know, speaking of the Antichrist, writes, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely withered and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So in this perhaps accident or assassination attempt or this military battle, the sword, somebody coming against him, we don't know exactly the circumstances surrounding it, is going to cause his right eye to be blinded and his arm's going to be injured. And as we look at this piece of the puzzle, again, the debate is among scholars and Bible teachers as whether he really did die or not. But it will appear that he is dead. He receives and, uh, and that is, he revives and he begins to gain more power. He comes back and he wins the world of affection. The world's going to marvel and follow him. So verse 4 here is what's really is fascinating. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? At this time in the tribulation period that the world is going to break out in satanic worship. Now here's the thing that we're going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 17. We're going to see that this false church is going to come on the scene. Paul warned about it when he was writing to the church at Thessalonica. He said, listen, that, that you know, there's going to be a falling away that's going to take place. Uh, and in this falling away, there's going to be the son of, uh, of, of sin, the, the man, son of perdition, the, the man of sin that's going to, to rise up. 
But there's going to be a falling away. And in chapter 17, what we see is this worldwide false church that's going to be on the scene. And it's a woman riding the beast. And this woman representing the false church is going to be a worldwide false church supported by the Antichrist in the first half of the tribulation period. And then the Antichrist is going to turn on the woman and destroy the woman. And he alone wants to be worshipped. So the midway point, again, very important point, is when he proclaims himself as being God, to be worshipped as God. And he will destroy that false church, and he will say that I alone am to be worshipped. And we're going to see the implications of that as we finish the chapter here tonight of what that means. And, and so he is going to rise up, and he alone wants to be worshipped. And anyone who comes against him, he is going to persecute. He is going to go after. And many of the tribulation saints, as we're going to see, and the Jews are going to be killed by the Antichrist. He is not a man of peace. His true colors are going to come out. The world is going to turn to him. And it's all going to be set up by this false church. I think we see the rumblings of that today. Now, you'll read all kinds of books that the false church is the Catholic church, you know, or whatever it may be, and, and they give their reasons. I believe when we get to Revelation chapter 17 that it's something different. So come back when we get to chapter 17, and we'll talk about that false world church. But I believe that the very foundations of it are being set today in this whole movement of we need to be you know, all together, ecumenical movement, all, you know, we all believe the same God, uh, this pluralism that's happening, um, we need to receive one another, we worship the same God, that's all going to be a part of that. But then the Antichrist is going to turn and say, I am God, worship me, and the world's going to turn and worship the beast who, who has authority from Satan, and they're going to be worshiping Satan, they're going to see him as such a great leader that has come back to life. They will worship him. Now, again, as we read about this, we think, how could that happen? But it all starts with that false church. It all starts when, when the world begins to think that we need to all come together, you know, religiously. You know, we need to come together. We worship the same God. And we're seeing that happen today, aren't we, more and more? They're going to say, who can stand against, you know, the beast? And I believe it not only speaks of his power, but it speaks of his popularity. Who can stand against him? So this one world church is going to play a part of that. And then the Antichrist, when the one world church, you know, is, is done suiting the Antichrist's purposes, he will turn on that one world church and he will claim himself as God. And we'll talk more about it, but it's, it's interesting. The things, here's the thing, folks. The, the rumblings that we see today that we look at and we think, how can this be happening? The Bible speaks about those things. That this is what it's going to be in the last days. Uh, that there's going to be a turning away from truth. There's going to be those, as we're going to see Paul writing to Timothy, that are giving themselves over to doctrines of demons. I mean, that's a heavy thing that Paul writes. So these things that we're going to talk about, that's why it's so important that we read our Bibles. And John, in his epistle, that he says that, listen, that many antichrists have gone on in the world. You've heard that the antichrist is to come. 
and how important it is that you and I, that we test the spirits to see if they are of God. And, and we're gonna, we know that the way to test it is through the Word of God, to filter everything through this book. This is our final authority right here. And you've heard me say this over and over again, but I'm going to say it once again. If you do not know your Bible, if you're not growing in the Word of God, you will get deceived. There's too many voices out there. And there are those who appeal to the flesh. They sound so confident. They, they sound so true. The world turns and says, yes, we agree with that. And it's sucking Christians into that kind of thing. And we know that we need to be wise. And the way to be wise is through the word of God. To know if that spirit is true. If what they're saying, we have to be wise in the day in which we're living in. We have to check those spirits to see if they are of God. Because many false prophets, as John would write, has gone out into the world. We know that as we continue, he was given a mouth in verse 5, speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. So there's that term. He's going to continue as he's going to be worshipped as God, uh, the abomination of desolation, uh, as he's going to continue for three and a half years. The world is going to, to seem like this man, uh, he's speaking great things, you know, for those in the world. But actually, he's blaspheming God. Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 says concerning Antichrist this little horn that he will speak pompous words against the most high Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 says the same thing he loves what God hates and he hates what God's love um, he will go after God's people he will continue he will prosper is what Daniel says for three and a half years here we're told 42 months and the Antichrist coming into power arising from those ten Horns, those ten kings, this extension of the Roman Empire that takes place for three and a half years until the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is going to terminate his reign. And he will have a total disregard for any God. He has a total disregard for the one and true God. He will magnify himself above all gods. Again, that reference, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So I believe that the Antichrist will be worshipped as God by the world, just as the Roman emperors were worshipped that we've talked about, you know, in, in our studies, particularly as we went through chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, those seven letters to the seven churches. At this time, John is being persecuted by Domitian. Remember at the end of the first century? And Domitian was killing Christians. He was persecuting Christians. And when we talked about the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, remember that Smyrna, that in the city of Smyrna, that they had the golden street and there was all these altars and, and temples that were dedicated to certain gods. And one of the main temples that was there was the temple that was dedicated to the, the emperor of Rome, to the emperors that had existed. And ever since the birth of Jesus, when Caesar Augustus was emperor, that's where they saw them as gods to be worshipped. And Domitian, he particularly, he was known in history that if you did not bow the knee to Domitian, he was going to go after you. 
And so they had this temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperors. And if you went in and you burnt some incense and you bowed the knee, they would make a record of that. So people came from all over to do that. And, and, and if you went down the street, though, and you worshipped at one of those other temples, that was okay. As long as you made your allegiance to the, the emperor of Rome, to Domitian. Now, the Christians, they weren't going to do that. And we talked about Polycarp, you know, and, and how they tried to. They liked Polycarp. They, the, the mayor of, of Smyrna said, why don't you just go down, burn some incense, and, you know, we'll document. He said, no. And the Christians didn't have a temple there on the Golden Street. So it, it was a different kind of deal back then than what it's going to be here because we know that the Antichrist, he doesn't want anybody worshiping any other god. And, and he alone is to be worshipped. So that's what makes it different than in the first century here with the Roman emperors. So he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, verse 6 tells us, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So as the Antichrist sets himself up as God to be worshipped as God, for those 42 months, he will blaspheme the name of God, his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. Again, a, a very similar comparison to what we read in Daniel 7 and chapter 11. To the world, he's going to sound wonderful. But to God, it is blasphemy. And that is true today, what we are hearing and what we are seeing. We are seeing today that people will call evil good, and they're calling good evil more and more, aren't we? And this time here, the Antichrist, who is Satan's mouthpiece, will, you know, offer the ultimate disbelief, irreverence, insult, blasphemous statements against God and anything in relation to God. Trying to magnify himself above all. And then in verse 7, power was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I've heard some who say, well, the Antichrist is just going to be a leader out of Rome. He's not going to be a world leader. Here, it gives clear indication that he is going to set himself up as a world leader over every tribe, tongue, and nation to be worshipped by the world. And verse 7, he made war with the saints to overcome them. Now, some say, uh-oh, didn't Jesus say... In Caesarea Philippi, when, when Peter gave his confession, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, that, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So some people read this, and it throws them for a loop. Hey, it seems like Satan's overcoming the saints. Here's the thing that, that we need to remember. I don't believe that here in the tribulation period, there are going to be those who are going going to come to Christ. Chapter 7, if you weren't here for that study, the 144,000 sealed by God, we will see them next week. It's going to be a really important study because they're sealed by God and they have purity in their lives. And we're going to talk about the, the benefits of purity. It's going to be a really important study. It is not a study that you hear much of today. 
But the benefits of purity is what the study is going to be about. The first five verses of these 144,000 that are going to go out and evangelize. They're sealed by God. And a result of that is those who come to believe in Jesus out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There's going to be a revival that takes place as well. And yet, this is not the church. Those are the tribulation saints. Remember, John was asked, you know, who are these? And John said, I don't know who they are. If it was the church, John would know who they are. So the angel answered John and said, listen, these are those that come out of the great tribulation. So when we hear that word saints here, uh, there's three groups of people referred to as saints in the scripture. In the Old Testament, God's chosen people, Israel. For you who want to check this out, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 3. When, when Moses is given his final blessing to the children of Israel before his death, right before they go into the promised land. And he says, yes, that he, God loves his people. All his saints are in your hand, Lord. Psalm chapter 30, at the dedication of David's house, that David would write, sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his. We know in the New Testament that Paul, when he would oftentimes uh, give his greetings to the churches, he would say to the saints that are in Philippi or Colossae or whatever church. So the definition of a saint may be different than, than what maybe perhaps you grew up thinking or in a church that, you know, that somebody lived and after their death they were canonized through the church and all of this. Listen, if you're a believer, you're a saint. So we have the church that we are saints in the church, but then the tribulation saints as well. And I believe that is what's being referred to here. And remember that in Revelation chapter 7, as they gave their lives to Christ and, and they were martyred for not giving their worship to the Antichrist is what I believe is being spoken of, that the Antichrist made war with the saints and overcame them. He's going to persecute them. He's going to persecute them very heavily. Daniel chapter 7, he, 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 he speaks of that as well. And, and he's not going to overcome their faith, but he is going to put them to death is what's being spoken of. And then in verse 8, all those who dwell on the earth, the term for unbelievers, uh, names not written in the book of life. Now, again, another thing to keep in mind, in chapters 2 and 3, those seven letters to the seven churches, remember that it ended with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, what? To the churches. You don't see that here as we're going to continue here in verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Not to the churches. So that's out. So if anyone has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says. And so another reason why I believe that this is not speaking of the church, I really believe that the church, that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation period begins. But in verse 10, he who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Uh, in other words, if anyone is for putting believers into captivity as you follow the beast, uh, you in turn will suffer the righteous wrath of God. If you kill with the sword, you'll be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. The word patient might be translated perseverance. God will deal with the Antichrist and, and his followers and do times we'll see that later and then I saw verse 11 another beast coming up out of the earth and he had ten horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon so here we see another beast 
He's called the beast, but he is not the beast. This one is different. He has two horns. This one comes out of the earth, not out of the sea like the Antichrist. He has two horns, speaks of power like a lamb. Probably seemingly more mild, gentle manner. This guy has the power in the religious realm called the false prophet. He's called that in Revelation chapter 16, verse 13. He is distinct from the dragon, from the first beast, the Antichrist. And that's why you have this counterfeit trinity, the false prophet, that what is he he's going to do? Well, let's continue reading. In verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and all those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So the second beast is essentially a satanic prophet. He points to the first beast and causes the world to worship him. Now, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 14, that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So this false prophet in this, this false trinity, he's going to point to the Antichrist and glorify the Antichrist. You can see why it's called this satanic devilish trinity. In verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should speak, both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So again, we see here that those who do not worship the Antichrist are going to be killed. The false prophet, despite a lamb-like appearance, will speak like a beast. His message is the same as the first beast. He performs great signs, calling down fire from heaven. Now Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, concerning the Antichrist, that the coming lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, sign, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. So the false prophet is going to perform signs and miracles and wonders. And it's all behind the power of Satan as well as the Antichrist deceiving many. And we know that Satan can work miracles. We see that in the book of Exodus, right? In the book of Exodus, you see that it was the, uh, you know, Pharaoh's uh, wise men who were able to throw down their staffs and they turned into serpents. But don't think that Satan is the opposite equal of God. He is not. When you get to the fourth plague, you know, the, the, the magicians were able to not only turn the staffs to, to serpents, they were also able to, to turn water into to blood. They were also able to call up some frogs, but they weren't able to take the frogs away. That was only by the, by the word given to Moses when to do that. And then in the fourth plague, those magicians said when it came about that this is the hand of God. So don't think that Satan is the opposite equal of God. He is not at all. But he does have power. And he is going to work miracles. And he's going to be able to call down fire from heaven. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, In the end times, false prophets would emerge, show great signs and wonders, and deceive 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, I get called on this, you know, uh, oftentimes on the radio. What does this mean? Chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, when those who say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we work miracles? And Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. People wonder what that's about. Well, there was no true relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't know you. So they come working miracles. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 and 5, God assumed that there would be some supernatural works on behalf of the false prophets, and he warned his people to judge a worker not just by the miracles, but the message. And if they deny the true and the living God, you are to deal with them. I've just got to say this. This is really important, especially in the day in which we're in. That when anyone comes on the scene, and they begin to point to some movement or, you know, miracles happening. And they say, this is the new revival. This is, you know, the happening thing that's going on. Just be very, very careful. And you can always tell a counterfeit when they point not to Jesus, but to some new thing, some new movement. Hey, this is a, a new thing. Look at the miracles. Look what's happening. The movement of the Holy Spirit is causing people to, to bark like a dog. To, I'm serious. To be drunk in the Spirit. To make animal noises. It's from Brownsville. This new revival from Toronto. Some place, some spot. I just stay away from that stuff. Pointing to something in place of knowing the nature and the character and person of Jesus Christ. Knowing him crucified. And that's why, listen, we are so blessed, aren't we? To be able to come here and to study him and to study his word. And to say, yeah, we believe in miracles, don't we? But we don't believe in weirdness. And signs and wonders will be present among Christians. But remember that the real mark of God's work is love and truth. And that's something that Satan can't do. He can't love and he doesn't give truth. He deceives. And our attention is on the person of Jesus Christ, not some strange fire that comes down. Be careful. And I believe that what we're going to see as we get closer to the Lord taking us home, that we're going to see great deception, perhaps. That I wouldn't be surprised if we see some new movement come along that's really going to captivate a lot of people, you know, with miracles or signs that's taken place, but it's very, very deceptive. I mean, you got weird stuff taking place right now that's capturing, you know, and captivating a lot of attention with young people and, and this whole, you know, Bethel and, and what they do in grave soaking. You know, lay on the grave of, of some dead saint that was used of God and you can soak in the anointing. It's weirdness. Now it's, it's healing dance. That, you know, I'm going to dance around you, Dan, and you're going to be healed. And it's just, that's what people are getting into. And don't be surprised if we see more of this. Our attention is on the person of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and godly edification. And I've seen these movements come and go. And don't be surprised if something really shortly comes along to where it catches a lot of people, you know, and they're pointing to the miracles. I believe God works miracles, but we don't chase after miracles. We follow after Jesus Christ. And you test the spirits to see if they are of God. 
Listen. And as long as you keep learning of Jesus and walking with Jesus and loving Jesus and growing in the Word of God, you're going to be strong and you're going to walk in truth and you're going to be wise and you won't be deceived. It's Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Amen? Are we clear on that? Because there are those who will call me and say, oh, you know, this miracle, gold dust, you know, showing up and all this stuff. So here in verse 15, the image is made to the beast. The image is what Daniel spoke of uh, and Jesus as the abomination of desolation, which we have talked about, will be set up in the rebuilt temple. We don't know what that image is. I think it has a lot to do with artificial intelligence, what we're seeing today. That they have people, you ever see the guy in Chinese news? He looks like a real person. He's given the news. There's so much that they can do with that. So some kind of image that is going to be placed in the temple there, the image is going to seem like it's alive. It's going to speak. Don't know exactly what that is, but we got to finish here tonight. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So what is the 666? Come back next week. We'll talk about it more. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be an economic leader. He's going to be a religious leader. He's going to be a military leader. And whoever does not identify with him the number is 666. Oh, let me tell you. We don't know what it is. His number, you know, there are those who came along and said, you know, Bill Clinton is, you know, 666. You know, his name adds up. There's all these people that say all of this. We don't know. It's not going to be revealed to us until after the church is taken out of and we're a restraining factor. We're not to be looking for the Antichrist. We're to be looking for Jesus Christ is what we are. It is associating with him, with the chip, right hand, your forehead. We know the technology is there, right? It's not if you own a Visa card. You know, somebody asked me, do you have a Visa card? I shouldn't get a Visa card. V-I-6. S-6, you know. I forgot what the A was. I said, no, you're fine. You can have a Visa card. Just, just be careful with it, how you spend your money. But that's not the mark of the beast. I'm not sure what the mark of the beast is, but what we're going to see in chapter 14, and, and I'll tell you more about it as we talk about perhaps some of the technology, some of the things, that if you take the mark of the beast, there is no hope of salvation. That is what an angel is going to proclaim. And you will not be able to buy or sell unless you take that mark. And there are going to be the tribulation saints that say, no, we're not going to go there. So, you know, for you and for me, as I think about that, they're going to stand firm and they're going to have their heads chopped off. There are going to be those that have to make some very, very intense, sobering, life, you know, threatening decisions in the tribulation period and they're going to stand for Jesus Christ. So can I end with you this? Where are you tonight? Sometimes people say, is this really all true? John, write these things down that must shortly come to pass. This is true. 
We're not going to see it. I believe we'll be raptured out. And, and I've had people say to me, yeah, well, I'll wait and see if the rapture happens. Bad move. Really bad move, okay? You want to use your head. Don't lose your head, all right? You want to come to Christ. Don't play games. Don't play games. Make a stand for Christ in the day in which we're living in. Fight the good fight, the good warfare, Timothy. And that is something for you and for me. Exhort, exhortation for us to fight the good fight and to stand for Christ. Let's do that, church. Let's do that, church. Are you willing to stand for him and be committed to him and not be given into the deception and the ways of culture in the world that is pressuring the church so much and Christians are given into it? You stand for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, there's so much more to say. There's so much we can cover, and we, we will in the weeks ahead. But, Lord, um, tonight as we end, uh, we thank you for this time in your word. And, and I thank you that we can come and we can hear truth. And these things are sobering. These things are intense and serious. But this is the direction of the world. We know that the world is not our hope. That the world's going to come to disasters in. And this one's going to deceive the world. But Lord, we thank you that we have truth. That we have Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins and rose again. That he gives us a living hope. So Father, I want to pray if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Listen, will you give your life to him? He gave his life for you. That's why he came to die on the cross, to die for your sins. Because our sins have separated us from him. And he loves you. And he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. He was put into a grave. He rose again. He proved he's the son of God. He is the only savior of the world. There is none other. He is the way to the father, the truth, the life, the way. There's no other way. And if you've never made a commitment to Christ, if that means anything to anyone here tonight, will you come to him in simplicity and in faith and childlike humility, humbling yourself and saying, I need to be forgiven and surrender my life to Jesus. You can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me, that you're the true Messiah that came, the Son of God, and died for my sins, forgive me, and you rose again in your life. And I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for bringing me here tonight or for this message. And Lord, I thank you for saving me and forgiving me and bringing me into the kingdom of God. And listen, if anyone is here tonight, if you're out in a coffee shop, because I know it's full out there, that come in if you made that decision for him and we got a prayer team up front here. But for us here tonight, may we stand for you, Lord. And as we ponder these things that will take place, we want to pray for those around us that, Lord, they would come to you because this world is going to come to a disastrous end. And, Lord, I pray that we would be a light to others and that we would love others and be a testimony of Jesus Christ. I thank you for our salvation. I thank you that we belong to the church and we look forward to when you come and you take us home.
But Lord, we also know that there's people around us. If we're close to the return of the Lord, we don't know the day or the hour that may be left that we'll be going through these things here. So help us have a proper perspective to have a heart for the lost and to be praying for those who are linked to us in our lives. Take us all home safely now as we end our evening. We look forward to meeting on Sunday when we're encouraged to fight the good fight of the Spirit, to fight a good warfare. So Lord, thank you. How your word is so wonderful, so glorious. I pray you bless everyone here in Jesus' name.